He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by whom we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even so, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in him and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration, that is, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's bow our heads together as we prepare to study God's word. Our Father, we're thankful for so much that you have revealed to us in your word. And even though we have studied some things many times before, we have heard some things many times before, There are always things that are left out, things that we don't have time to cover, things that we haven't understood yet, things that we may not have even perceived yet. And Father, so each time we go to your word, there are fresh things that we recognize and that God the Holy Spirit brings different things to our attention in order to focus us on our spiritual life and our need to apply specific passages and specific doctrines. And Father, as we study today, as we are reminded of this incredible work of God the Holy Spirit, that he has sealed us, and all that that entails, may we recognize that the purpose of this ultimately is not simply to understand what the Scripture teaches, but to recognize that the implication of this teaching is to challenge us to greater faithfulness and more consistent obedience and our walk with you. And we pray that you would open our eyes further into these truths as we study today. In Christ's name, amen. This morning, we're continuing our study on the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. And we're going to focus today on this ministry of the sealing by God the Holy Spirit. And there are several key passages for that that I've listed here on the title slide. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, where we uh, surveyed it at the beginning. Ephesians 4, 30, where we'll conclude today. And 2 Corinthians 1, 22. These are the key passages that relate to sealing. As I have pointed out, as we have been studying in Ephesians, we went through the second part of Ephesians chapter 2, and we studied verses 11 down through uh, verse 22. And within that group of about 12 verses, there are two paragraphs, and each ends with some statement about the Holy Spirit. And the first one is Ephesians 2.18, that through him, that is through Christ, We both have access by one spirit, and that's important to understand because it is this preposition in Greek, the preposition in, that can have a number of meanings. And I believe that the most consistent one to understand it with the spirit is that he's the means by which God the Father is accomplishing something. And we learned from our passages we studied and uh, read last time that both the Father and the Son send the Spirit. In Ephesians 2.22, the Spirit is instrumental in building this temple, this invisible temple, and it has two aspects. From 1 Corinthians, we learn that it is a temple in each believer, that God the Holy Spirit makes each of us a temple, For the indwelling of God the Father and God the Son, we are indwelt by all three members of the Trinity. And also that he is building us, us as believers, as the universal body of Christ into a temple for the dwelling of God. And that's what we have in Ephesians 2.22. 
And so all believers, everyone who has trusted in Christ as Savior, from the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 to the rapture, which we haven't had yet, everyone in between that trusts Christ as Savior is part of the invisible, the universal body of Christ. Some are already promoted in heaven Others are awaiting their promotion to heaven, and some of us count each day and hope that the Lord will return, looking for his uh, return in the clouds to take us to be with him. So last time, and in previous time, we studied these ministries of God the Holy Spirit today, uh, most of which did not occur in the Old Testament. I think his restraining ministry did occur in the Old Testament, But I don't think his convicting ministry in the sense that it is taking place today occurred in the Old Testament because of the passage where Jesus is teaching that, where it's convicting the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. And all three of those relate to what Christ does on the cross. So that could not have taken place in the way it's taking place today uh, in the Old Testament or prior to the church age. At the time of salvation, we have studied regeneration and seen that that is uh, something that is true for every person who believes in the gospel, whether it is the Old Testament gospel of the uh, future coming of the Messiah or whether it is the uh, New Testament gospel looking back to the cross, uh, all are regenerate. I think there are other things that accompany regeneration in each dispensation, but that doesn't deny the fact that he who is dead spiritually, for as Ephesians 2, 1 says, we're all born dead spiritually, but we are, we are physically alive. Spiritual death does not mean we're a corpse that can't do anything. It means that we're just separated from the life of God. And that uh, that is a distortion, I think, in the way some people uh, teach uh, total depravity and spiritual death. Uh, Ephesians 4.17 is clear that it is alienated or separated from the life of God. So all need to be regenerated. It's interesting that even Lewis Ferry Chafer did not believe regeneration took place in the Old Testament. There's so much confusion about these. Each one of these ministries... And uh, what he said was something like it occurred because he thinks that it's totally related to what, uh, to some of the distinctives related to the church age. That's why it's so important to distinguish between the core idea of being born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus is living in the Old Testament dispensation, the age of Israel before the cross. Is You must be born again, expecting him, A, to understand it, and B, to be able to do it. Now, if regeneration is only for the church age, then you have a a problem with that. So regeneration is in every dispensation. The baptism by the Holy Spirit is the mark of the church. Again, a much often uh, distorted a doctrine, a, a doctrine that is poorly understood uh, by many, but one that simply indicates that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, according to Romans 6, 3 through 6. And then, as we saw last time, every believer in the church age is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. So as we have been looking at the ministries of God the Holy Spirit, we've broken them all down. And last week with the indwelling, we saw that this is something that is part of a plan of God for his dwelling among his people. And I didn't even carry it through to the fact that when we get into the new heavens and the new earth, there will not be a need for a sun or a moon to illuminate the earth because the earth is illuminated by the glory of God and God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will dwell with us in that um, future state. So this is a doctrine that goes across uh, in one form or another. There is an indwelling of God throughout many of the ages and dispensations, and we covered that last time. So we're baptized by the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. At the same time, we're going to be, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. There's all of these 
other ministries that we're talking about happen at the instant of salvation. And we saw last time that there was an indwelling of God in the Old Testament before the church, and he indwelt in the Garden of Eden, I believe, until the earth, uh, that the former earth perished, and then he was not dwelling on the earth until he came when the Israelites built the tabernacle, and then he dwelt uh, between, he was enthroned between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant until the time of e- e- where Ezekiel sees the departure of the Shekinah, that is the dwelling presence, the glory of the dwelling presence of God. And then God does not seem to return. It's not mentioned that you have the glory of God dwelling in the second temple. And then it is not until Jesus is born where you have the eternal second person of the Trinity dwelling in a uh, in his physical body and in him paul says dwelt the godhead dwelt the fullness of deity then we saw the differences between regeneration or i skip, i remember now i skipped over that but that they are different they are not the same and then third the indwelling of the holy spirit today and we covered all of those things so that we recognize that god the holy spirit at the instant of salvation, takes up residence in every believer. His purpose is to make both the church as a whole and the individual believer a temple for the indwelling of God the Father and God the Son. Now, these next ministries that we talk about are not the same as indwelling, and some people make those get confused at some of these issues. They are the result of the indwelling. They are distinct ministries, but they flow out of the fact that God the Holy Spirit indwells us. And the first of these is the sealing of the Spirit. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about being sealed by God the Holy Spirit. So at that instant of salvation... At the same time that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are also sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the passages, the key passages that we will look at emphasize that the sealing by the Spirit is related to the indwelling. But remember, they are not the same thing. So... The verse that we have already studied on this in Ephesians 1.13 is one of the central passages for the sealing by the Spirit. In whom, that is, in Christ, in him, you also, and the reason he's saying you also, he's, he's just talked about what the Jewish background believers who were first saved at Pentecost in the early part of the church from Acts 2 to Acts uh, 10 uh, what they had experienced, he said, in him you also, you Gentiles also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, in whom, that is, I'm, I'm restating that because of the way the Greek is shaped, when you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. That participle is important because it's coterminous. It says, when you believed, at that instant, that is when you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of promise. And what you will hear some people say and what you will read some theologians say is that this is the promise of the Spirit that was promised in the New Covenant. And they will then go to passages in Ezekiel and passages in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 to make that that uh, connection. The problem with this is that I have seen, and, and on Friday morning, Friday mornings, you know, I have this group of pastors. We have between 20 or 30 every Friday morning who log in, and we have missionaries from around the world, and we have uh, pastors in England. Uh, we have others in Sweden as well as many of the states who all log in every week. Well, about a year or two ago, a year and a half ago, I think it was, we did an in-depth drill down on the New Covenant. And we took two books, one written 
um, by Mike Stallard and another one written by Christopher Cohn on this issue of the New Covenant. And as Stallard points out in his book, because his book was based on the first the, the papers that were given at the first meeting of the Dispensational Hermeneutical Study Group, which at that time was meeting at Baptist Bible Seminary up in Pennsylvania, he said that there is no doctrine among dispensationalists about which they disagree more than the doctrine of the relation of the church to the new covenant. And when you start reading all of these different views, it it gets to be a real mare's nest. And there were three basic views that were presented at that conference. So what I did was I got got each of the men, because I knew most of them, each of the men who had written these different position papers. So what you have is these books where you have a position paper and then two, the other two people respond and critique his view. And so we went through that, but it was also, uh, you could, we also blended in with that a study of Chris Cohn's book, which, in which everyone agreed to the same position, which was that the church has no relationship to the new covenant which I am very close to that, that position, that the, church, the new covenant is for Israel and the church. There are a lot of things that happened with the church in relation to the, the Holy Spirit that are similar to, but they're not the same as. And that's where a lot of these guys make their mistake, is they think that the, when, when the new covenant talks about the spirit will be in you, that that's the same as what we have now. And it's similar, but it's not the same. And so you have to make these these specific specific distinctions. And what I find in so many of the writings of different theologians about what the role of the Holy Spirit, especially the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and in the sealing of the Spirit uh, today, is that how they understand some of these passages is directly related to how they understand whether or not the New Covenant fully came into effect on the day of Pentecost partially came into effect on the day of Pentecost or something, you know, a foreshadowing or or nothing. And and that affects it. So you have to really learn how to read these guys with a lot of of discernment. And so it's not always quite as simple as some people might think. So what we have here is this distinct ministry for the church age. I do not think there is anything like this even for Jewish believers in the millennial kingdom. Uh, they are not said to be sealed by the Spirit. And so it is based upon this word on the right, the Greek word sphragizo, uh, which means to seal. And it is stated in the aorist tense, which is a past tense form in, in the Greek, indicating that that at the time they believed, they were sealed. It happened in the past. Both of these are in the aorist tense. Pistuo, the word for believed, is a participle, and it is a participle that defines or is related to spargizo. And when you have two aorist tenses, the participle is an aorist and the main verb is an aorist, then it, the action can either precede the action of the main verb or it happens at the same time, but they both happened at the same time in the past. Now, the next verse introduces a related doctrine that is significant for understanding the nature and purpose of the sealing ministry. And this is, the verse goes on to say, or the sentence goes on to say, who is, that is the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, so it's looking forward to something that brings about a fulfillment of this, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, we're redeemed. Christ paid the penalty at the cross. That happened historically. We realize our redemption when we trust in Christ as Savior but we don't realize the fullness of that until glorification. Okay, so that's what this is talking about, that we have been given this guarantee of our inheritance. And that word in the Greek is arbon, and there it's usually translated as deposit or it can be translated as a pledge 
or an earnest. Now, the issue here is what's the difference between a pledge and an earnest? And that is important to understand. So we will get into that as we go forward. So here's what I'm going to do in our time. We're going to briefly define the term so you understand where we're headed. Then we're going to look at the meaning of spragizo, which is the word for sealing. Then third, we will look at the meaning of arabone, which means to pledge. And then fourth, we'll look at briefly at these four key passages, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and Ephesians 4, 30, and then summarize why this is important to us in our spiritual life. One thing that we see here from Ephesians uh, 1, 13 is that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. He is stated there to be the means of the sealing. When we get into the first, our second Corinthians passage, we'll see that he is also the sealing itself. So he is the, both the seal and the one by whom the seal is accomplished in much the same way that Jesus Christ is both high priest and the sacrifice, okay? So here's our definition. The seal by the Spirit is the pledge that uh, certifies God's ownership and protection, uh, which secures the salvation of the church-age believer from the moment of faith when the Holy Spirit dwell indwells until ultimate salvation and glorification is uh, is realized. So this is, um, I'm going to change the term there. Let's call it the seal by the Spirit is the deposit. That's a better term. Is the deposit that certifies God's ownership and protection, which secures the salvation of the church-age believer from the moment of faith when the Holy Spirit indwells until ultimate salvation in glorification is realized. So as you can see from the definition, part of the significance of this for us is that we have this guarantee and this security that we are owned by God, we are marked by God, we are identified as his possession, and that is one of the elements that is critical to understanding what the Bible teaches about our eternal security. So what is the basic meaning of spragizo? In Ephesians 1.13, we are sealed by the Spirit of God. Now, this word, like so many words, excuse me, I have to adjust something here. Keep getting these things. Okay, um, that's not right. Eddie, we need to adjust the projector because it is off the screen. There we are. It's too high. Okay. This word, like like most words, most words have several meanings. You can look up the word logos in a Greek dictionary and see 20 or 30 different meanings for the word logos. We have English words like that. So you can't just take every meaning and read it into a particular usage. You have to look at it and say, okay, which, which meaning really fits the best? And this word has a number of different uh, uses. Uh, sometimes it refers to physical seal. This was a stamp of some, some kind, usually made out of clay, sometimes made out of metal or something harder, where there is something carved on the uh, underside that when it is pressed into wax or something of that nature, then it is... Um, then it leaves an imprint that is readable. And it was like a signature. It was unique. Everybody had their own or their own distinct uh, particular uh, seal. And this was how you would sign any document, not a personal signature, but you would also relate to a 
uh, a signature that uh, that that was unique to that person. So everybody's seal, uh, everybody's seal was just a little bit different. So it referred to that physical seal that was used, and it also would refer to the impression. So it talks about the object itself or the imprint that it would leave. And this is a equivalent to a person's signature, so that if you were signing a contract, if you were in our society signing a check, you know, signing a title deed or signing a letter, you would use your seal. So everybody would carry their seal with them uh, where, wherever they went. It was uh, sometimes used as a decorative attachment to your clothes so that you would hang it around your neck or have it hanging around your waist or something like that so it would be uh, considered an accessory. And uh, they were used by so widely that Herodotus comments that everyone had a staff and a seal. Now, if you think about this story in the Old Testament where uh, Judah uh, ends up uh, trying to have a sexual relationship with what he thinks is a prostitute, and he does, and it's his, it, it's, it, it, she's disguised, but it's his daughter-in-law, uh, Tamar, and she, um, and so he doesn't have any money to pay her, so he gives her his rod and his seal, his staff and his seal. So this is uh, the kind of thing everybody had with them and everybody carried with them. And so we have several examples of the use of a seal, and it's important to look at these because they tell us what the basic meanings are. And in this first group, one of the things that a seal was used was to seal something off, to close something off, to make it inaccessible. So we have the example in Daniel chapter 6. This is a story of Daniel being put into the den of lions, a story that many of us are familiar with. And so the king, uh, Darius, is going to make sure that he can't get out, that nothing happens. And so the procedure was that when the door was closed, uh, it was sealed, and he sealed it with his own signet ring. So this is Daniel 6:17. This stone is brought to the mouth of the den, and it is placed in the opening, and then there would have been some rope or something of that nature that has a wax, a wax affixed to it, and then he stamps it with his seal, and so... Uh, that can't, if that's broken, then you know somebody's gone in there or Daniel has gotten out. And so it demonstrates that, that when he comes back, that it's still sealed. So nothing has happened and Daniel is still, uh, inside. And of course we know that God, uh, rescued Daniel and the lions just weren't hungry that day. It's also used at the sealing of the tomb of Jesus. This is the same kind of thing. You have the tomb in which Jesus was sealed. You have the rock rolled into place, and then a rope is stretched across the opening, and uh, it is affixed to either side, and then it, it, there's wax placed upon it, and then there is a seal placed there, to keep it from being accessed. Nobody can go in, nobody can come out. So this idea of making it inaccessible also includes the idea of protection because it's protecting it from uh, someone getting in there or from something getting out. And so we're told that the Roman guard went to the tomb and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So we have this idea it makes it inaccessible, it is secured, and it is, uh, it is a protection. So those are the ideas that we're seeing with sealing. In Revelation 20, we learn about the fact that Satan is going to be cast into the abyss. And there is an angel that is going to uh, take him. Uh, take him. This is the arresting angel who takes him down to the abyss, the bottomless pit, and shuts him up and then sets a seal on him so that he cannot get away. He is not going to be able to access the world, and the world is not going to be able to access him for a thousand years. So it secures him away from the human race. So again, we see this same idea that is present 
uh, in a in a seal. Another place that we see this is in um, uh, Revelation chapter five, verses one and two. We're familiar with this that in Revelation chapter four there is this scroll, and this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And the angels are looking for someone worthy to open the scroll, to open the seal. So that which is inside the document is not accessible. Nobody knows what is inside the scroll. And it is secured by the seal so no one can access it. And then we read that there is one who is found who is worthy to access the seal, and that is the Lamb of God who was slain uh, for, the, for our sins, and he comes before the throne of God and is given the seal. And in Revelation 5, 1, we read, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. So this is a, another idea in sealing. So all of this relates to protecting someone, keeping it accessible, secure. Those are all part of the idea. Another idea that we see in sealing is that it certifies or secures something. It secures or certifies a person. So if he has the seal of whoever sent him on a mission, then that certifies him as the emissary or as the representative of the one who sent him, for example, a king. In Genesis 41:42, we see that uh, Pharaoh gave Joseph his seal that indicates that he represents the Pharaoh and he has he speaks with the same authority as the Pharaoh. So here it adds a different idea. It not only certifies uh, Joseph as the representative of the Pharaoh, but also indicates that he has the authority of the Pharaoh behind him. Another example that we see from the Old Testament is in Haggai 2.23. There we read the Lord making this prophecy. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in the line of David, and he was going to be the, he wasn't going to be the king, but he was going to be the uh, head of state, as it were, for the, the Israelites that had returned from Babylon. There's only a few of them. Uh, when they returned from Babylon, there might have been, when you add them up, there might have been 60 or 70,000 Jews that returned. Most of them stayed in the uh, diaspora. And so God says in that day, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. That is the ring that has the seal on it. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And so God gives Zerubbabel this signet ring. He is the representative of God, has the authority of God as the king, and he has the authority over to rule and to lead Israel. So these are all parts part of the idea of the significance of sealing. Also, we see in some passages that a seal certified important doctrines. It could certify a will. It could certify a marriage contract. It could certify a deed of sale, or it could certify a covenant. And this, of course, is going to be uh, an important aspect to it. Uh, important documents were agreed to, and then uh, both sides would uh, uh, put their seal on that particular document. And there are examples of that in places such as Jeremiah 32, 9 through 12. And in Nehemiah 9, 38 to 10, 1, the priests affixed their seal to the covenant uh, that is 
uh, being renewed with God. They are uh, going through a covenant renewal ceremony after they have returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity. They, uh, Nehemiah has read through the Mosaic covenant, and now they're affixing their seal to it to obey it and to implement it. And then uh, last but not least, we have its use in Romans 4.11, where Paul is relates it to the sign of circumcision. In Romans 4.11, we read, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So circumcision is the sign. Abraham had already trusted in Christ, even when we read the statement in Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The verb tense indicates Abraham had already believed God at some time prior to the events of, of Genesis 15, 1 through 5, and that what God's promise to Abraham is based on the fact that Abraham had already uh, believed in God. And so that's what this verse goes on to say, that he had trusted in God and had been justified when he was uncircumcised. Paul's argument is circumcision wasn't the basis of justification. Obedience to the law wasn't, uh, wasn't the basis for justification. It is faith alone. And so... Uh, circumcision then is a sign or certification. God is certifying what has already taken place that Abraham is uh, a believer and was saved and is going to be the father of all those who believe, whether they are Jews and he's the physical father of all Jews or Gentiles, and he, according to Genesis 3, is our spiritual father. And then... The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is sealed by the Father. John six twenty seven. Jesus says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So that includes the idea of God the Father uh, authenticating Jesus, certifying Jesus, giving Jesus authority, and the context is he has just fed the, uh, I believe it's the 4,000 there, he has just fed them, there's just been this miracle, and that attests or certifies to Jesus' deity and his claim to be, uh, to be the Messiah. And then the ceiling also indicates ownership and protection so that people would put uh, their seal on just about anything that they owned, just as you might put a mark on different things, or if you have books, you write your name in it. I have a seal, an embosser that I use on books in my library, and so we mark our possessions that way, and that was true in the uh, in the ancient world. And so when we come to this, in conclusion, what we've learned from these examples of sealing is that the Holy Spirit, this analogy is used to teach the believer about his sealing. We're sealed at the moment of our salvation. The Holy Spirit himself is the seal, and he is also the means by which that sealing is applied to the ministry. And in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, we also see that, that the Trinity is involved, that it is God, the one who is who does the sealing, that we are sealed in Christ, so he is the sphere in which the sealing is done, and it is the Holy Spirit who is the instrument of the sealing. And so we have seen from this that the Holy Spirit certifies that God owns us, certifies God's protection of us, that it happens at the instant of salvation. So from the instant that we believe until the Lord takes us to be with him, this is seen as a, this, I, this uh, identification and certification is seen as the deposit. That's the next thing, the deposit that, uh, that is a, 
given as a way of indicating what we will eventually uh, receive. So that is the third question. What is the meaning of arabon? Is this the idea of an earnest deposit, a down payment? The Holy Spirit is the down payment for our salvation, and that's how uh, I understand it. The word, the idea of a pledge doesn't quite fit. So what exactly is the distinction here? What is the significance of an earnest payment or a down payment, an earnest payment or a down payment? In, In Greek, this word could cover either scenario, and so we have to understand the difference. The difference is that if it's a deposit, and you're familiar with the deposit or an earnest payment, if you go buy a house, you have to put down a certain amount of money. And that is to uh, guarantee that you will fulfill the obligations of the sale and you will carry out the sale, and also to guarantee that the seller will not uh, violate the contract and sell to somebody else. If, uh, If you break the contract and you decide not to buy, then you forfeit that deposit, okay? In the idea of a pledge, a pledge is when you give something as a pledge that you're going to do something. It may be something valuable. It may be a jewel. It may be uh, money. It may be gold. But what happens is when the contract is fulfilled, you get that back, okay? So in the analogy, God gives us this, this arabone, When we're saved, finally, does he get anything back? No. So it doesn't fit the idea of a pledge. It is a down payment because we're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a deposit of what will eventually be fulfilled, which is our complete salvation, and then we will have much more. And so this is really the best way to understand this concept that it's a, an earnest payment, a deposit, or a down payment. And down payment is a much more user-friendly uh, term. So in 2 Corinthians 1.21 we read, Now he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us, and has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And I put pledge or deposit there because you've got to make a decision which one. That's how most people will will handle it. So it's the idea of a, of a deposit. The Spirit is given as a deposit or a down payment on our future complete salvation and glorification. Now, what's interesting when you get into this particular passage that it has a little bit of a complicated uh, exegesis because the uh, four verbals that are there establishes, anointed us, has sealed us, and given us, these are all translated as, as finite verbs, which is fine. I think that's the sense that's there, but they're all participles in the, in the, in the Greek. But they're all aorist participles, so they indicate something that has already taken place in the past. And it's interesting to look at each one of these just a little bit. The first one is a word that means to make something firm, to make it certain, to make it sure, uh, to attach something to a firm foundation. So he who establishes us connects us to a firm foundation. As we've studied, that foundation ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and prophets. So this is the imagery of the word. We are we're basically grounded in that foundation as a result of this. He, uh, he establishes us in Christ. That is part of what it means to be in Christ. And then next, he anoints us. This is the Hebrew verb creo. The noun is Christos, where we, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means to be anointed. Now, if you've ever been in a Baptist church 
or if you've ever been in a Pentecostal church and maybe even in some Bible churches, they will talk about and pray about getting a fresh anointing from the Spirit. And they will talk about anointing in a lot of ways that is not exegetically defensible. The Apostle John is really, outside of this mentioned by Paul, is the only one who uh, uses the word anointing several places. And that's just John's way of talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they are the same. And we see that connection here, that it's connected with the sealing. He's anointed us, that is, he has given us God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and then that is connected to his sealing ministry. So the um, I'll talk a little bit more about anointing in a future lesson in this series to go through those First John passages, but that's important to see here that that Paul is connecting uh, the sealing ministry to the indwelling ministry of Christ. So we are have been established in Christ. He in God the Holy Spirit indwells us. Uh, he and He has sealed us. That is, He has given us, put on us a mark of ownership. Now, we may not be able to see that in one another, but we certainly can see it in, uh, I mean, God the Father can certainly see us. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, it talks about the 144,000 who are saved. They are not Jehovah's Witnesses. They are not Mormons. They are not anybody who has yet appeared on the planet. They are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And unless you believe in some kind of uh, sort of voodoo, hermeneutic, you have to say that these are literal Jews from those literal tribes, and they are, they come after the tribulation begins, and their role is to go forth as as evangelists uh, throughout the world, and they, ha- they are marked with a seal. It protects them from being uh, killed until the time comes when the Lord will allow them to be mar- martyred. They do not survive the tribulation. But for the first half, they go throughout, uh, throughout their ministry. So they're sealed. So that's a visible mark, apparently, uh, that, that protects them. So we're sealed, and God has given us, notice the, the uh, way the verb is structured. It is God who is the one who performs the action, God the Father, and he gives us, God the Holy Spirit, in our hearts, that is, in our innermost being. In our, he indwells us, and he is a down payment. He is a deposit for that future salvation. Now, the next time that word is used is in 2 Corinthians 5 5. And Paul here says, Now he, meaning God the Father, the he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as an Erebon as a down payment. And so God the Holy Spirit is mentioned here as the down payment on our salvation so that we have certain realities today that are simply a shadow of that which we will have when we are glorified and when we are with the Father in heaven. The next verse is the one we've studied before, the one in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verses 13 and 14, and it talks about in him, that is in Christ, you also trusted, that is you believed, past tense, you have believed, after or when, you believed when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel. In him you also trusted when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, which is very simple. The gospel is just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, and he is the one who died on the cross 
for our sins. We don't have to do anything in order to get salvation. We don't have to clean up our lives. We don't have to feel sorry for our sins. All we have to do is trust in Christ and we'll be saved. The faith is alone. It's not faith plus anything. And Christ is alone. We're not trusting in Christ and our works. We're not trusting in Christ and the saints. We're not trusting in Christ and Mary. We're trusting in Christ alone. That is the gospel, the good news of our salvation. In whom also, that is in Christ also, having believed. Again, past tense, it goes back when you believed. When you believed, you were sealed. So we could translate it also, at the time you believed, at the instant you believed, you were sealed by means of the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is that down payment? He is that guarantee, that down payment, that deposit of our inheritance. He, he is given as a guarantee that it will be completed and we will receive that inheritance. And he is our deposit until the redemption of the purchased possession. We are the purchased possession and until we realize our full salvation and are glorified, uh, we, we have this seal by the Holy Spirit of promise. And then the last one is the one we read earlier in our scripture reading. And it is part of the verse, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this verse is not only connecting uh, sealing with that promise of the uh, future redemption, but it is also connecting the sealing to our sanctification. Because the command there in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, is an actually I believe that is an anthropopathism, it is, and it, and it communicates to us the severity of our sin. And it's in the context of Paul warning them about uh, five different things that could characterize their life in, um, in, in disobedience to God. Uh, so the initial command is therefore putting away lying. That's the first thing, that lying or not telling the truth or being deceptive is the initial statement. Let each one of you speak with truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. So he's really talking about within the body of Christ because that's the only other way in which we're members of one another, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Second command, which relates to another sin, the sin of anger, be angry and do not sin. Well, how do you do that? Well, you don't act on your anger. You don't let your anger cause you to say things you will regret. You don't let your anger cause you to do things you will regret. You don't let your anger cause you to destroy other people's property. This is one of the problems that I have with uh, the the kind of things that are happening today in the riots and the destruction that goes with them. People say, well, I'm angry about these things. Well, if you act out on that anger, that is a sin. And if you destroy other people's property, that is a sin. And so how can you as a Christian participate in that? This is why these these things that are happening today, you have many Christians who are going to saying they are aligned with these particular organizations, but that means they're validating all that they are doing. This does not honor God or honor Christ. Just because you and they agree that a wrong thing has been done doesn't mean their solution is something that you should be involved in. So be angry and do not sin. And second, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let it keep, don't continue to harbor that anger in your soul any longer than sunset. By sunset, you have to give it up because if you continue to harbor it, it will eat away at your soul. And as Peter said, these are the sins that make war against your soul. 
Then the third is do not give place to the devil. Don't let the devil. That doesn't mean uh, that you should not get involved in the occult, although that would be included. All human viewpoint is part of the world system. All human viewpoint is demonic influence. Don't give place. Don't get involved with with the the philosophies of the world. Don't get involved in the other religions or the way of thinking. Don't buy into the psychobabble as a way of explaining human behavior. What you need to understand is the Word of God, and the problem is sin, and the solutions are in the Word of God, and the Word of God is sufficient. Uh, in verse 28, we have the fourth command there, let him who steals steal no longer. And then the emphasis is on rather let him labor, work hard, work diligently that you may have something to give him who has need. The giving to those who are in poverty to helping them should come from a the individual's volition and not the government. It is not the government's responsibility. When the government steps in and takes over responsibility from the individual and violates the first divine institution, it is always inefficient and it is handled irresponsibly, and there is no way to validate it. Uh, that, that up until the end of the 19th century, uh, most charitable uh, needs were met through the church or church-related organizations, and there have been several books that have been published over the last 20 years demonstrating that that was much more efficient and could hold people accountable, and it was based on local uh, local organizations and local people who could follow up on it. And so the emphasis in Scripture is, as Paul says at the end of Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians three: If you don't work, you don't eat, you don't eat. Period. Now there are cases where there are people who cannot. We're not talking about those who are cannot. We are not talking about. The widows and the orphans under the Mosaic law, there was a safety net for them, and that was the third tithe. But that is not to be normative. It's, it's primarily to be handled by the family, but there was a, a way to handle things when there were uh, these exceptions. And then verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification. So any of those previous sins, which represent a whole lot of others, would grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And this is not to be characteristic of someone who is God's, who is owned by God, who is protected by God, and who is sealed by God. That is the, the thrust of that particular passage. And so as we look at these passages, we come to understand that the role of of uh, God the Holy Spirit is to provide, as he seals us, is that it provides a, a deposit, a down payment. So it looks to the future, the full realization of that. So number one, we learn that we have eternal security. So we never should doubt our salvation, never question it, because whether we feel like it or not, God the Holy Spirit has sealed us until the day of, of redemption. Secondly, that that is that it's a guarantee of our salvation. It is a down payment on our salvation, but it is also a motivation to live our spiritual life, to glorify God, and to not get involved in habitual sinning that uh, will grieve the Holy Spirit. Of course, when we sin, we confess sin, and we are instantly forgiven but we are not to treat uh, confession of sin as a get-out-of-jail-free card so that we can just sin freely. So this is what God the Holy Spirit provides for us, and he is the means for providing it where we are sealed, we are identified as God's possession, and we are secured by that sealing, and that can never be broken. Next week we'll come back and begin to look at uh, the filling of the Spirit and the leading of the Spirit and a couple of the other things that are related to the Spirit's ministry today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to be reminded of such a gracious thing that you have done. Our salvation is secured by your character, by your promise in so many places, but in addition to that, you have 
as part of the indwelling of this of the Holy Spirit, you have, as it were, branded us as yours. We have this mark on us that we are yours, we are owned by you, and you protect us. This just is an additional act of your grace to us. Father, this is you do so much for us, you've given us so much, and to understand these things just drives us even further to gratitude for all that you've given us and to a desire to serve you and walk with you more consistently. We pray that anyone listening to this message would understand the gospel, that Christ died for their sins. Christ died for everyone's sins. Everyone is a sinner. Us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only solution is Christ's payment for our sins. He is the one who died for us that only by believing in him will we have forgiveness of sin, no matter what it is, no matter what the shame. Christ paid the penalty, and we are forgiven completely and totally and are given eternal life, and that is sealed and marked uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that anyone listening would trust in Christ as Savior. And we pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.